0: are actually the most powerful parting um, in there of Israel. We, we read all the time about the Pharisees. But the primary, the, those who were the aristocrats, when you read about the priests, the high priests, all those up in the upper echelon, these belong to the Sadducees. They actually, when we... <laughs> You know, we, we, when we hear the term Pharisee, we're always thinking of hypocrite and how bad they are. Actually, they were the, actually the more popular of the two groups among the common people. Because, as I mentioned, the Sadducees, they were aristocrats, they were rude, they disdained the people, treated them rudely. Uh, the Pharisees earnestly desired uh, to keep the law, to be righteous, They may be harsh with the people to a degree, but they would say it's only for their good. They're trying to get them to follow the law of God. But the the biggest contrast between these two groups had to do with their doctrine, their religious beliefs. The Pharisees devoted themselves, of course, to the law of Moses, but also, you'll hear them oftentimes speaking of tradition, they... Uh, revere the oral traditions that were passed down by rabbis generation after generation. But well, the Sadducees rejected all of that altogether. They only acknowledged five books, the five books of the Torah, the five book of Moses, as being truly that of God. They also disagreed over the doctrine of the Resurrection, now, they mention here to Jesus about the resurrection. They're doing it in a very sarcastic manner because they do not believe there is such a thing as a resurrection. The Pharisees, on the other hand, do. And all their hope is in there. I don't know if you remember Paul when in the book of Acts. He's on trial in the Sanhedrin. And he's got the... He's would have the Pharisees there, he'd have the Sadducees, and suddenly he just cries out uh, to his brother Pharisees. He says, I'm a Pharisee, which he was, and I'm standing here on trial because of my faith in the resurrection. And that causes a great uh, chaos there because those who were Pharisees were taking his, his side. The other thing that they differed about is I mean, not just the resurrection. The Sadducees really didn't believe that there was life after death, period. This life is all that there is. Furthermore, they discounted angels, spirits, anything like that. And, uh, and so the Pharisees did believe all of that, which is also to common people as well. So again, all the more they preferred the Pharisees. So now these, these Sadducees, very arrogant group, they, they think they're ready to shame Jesus, and they're going to do it through their impeccable logic and biblical knowledge. Now let me note, Jesus also, by the way, agrees with the Pharisees in their belief of the resurrection and angels as we're about to see. But anyhow, the, the Sadducees have chosen this particular topic. They think they've got it airtight. So let's look back at it again. And now you'll see the sarcasm as it comes out. Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. And this this was true. Back in the Old Testament, you, if if your husband died, you had no children, then your brother takes you in and marries you so that you can have Children, hopefully a son that then passes on the name of the original husband. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married, died without leaving any children. second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Well, guess they just showed Jesus, didn't they? I mean, obviously, the idea of the resurrection is foolishness. And, and if only people would just think this through logically, like, like they had just done. Well, they would, they would see this. And, by the way, they're quoting from whom? Moses. From the Torah, from the book of the law. And that's a smooth stroke because they're bringing in Moses and nobody, no one can dispute his writings as anything but the divine word of God. Well, I suppose that they finished their remarks with a smirk on their faces and expected Jesus to, I don't know, turn red maybe, get get flustered or whatever. I mean, what could he say to this? How is he going to respond? Well, of course, he has no trouble at all in responding. And he does it in such a way that it's truly like a verbal smack in the face back at them. Look at me in verse 24 and 25. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. He's basically saying... Are you really that dumb? I mean, aren't you? You're a priest, aren't you? And and, and you've had... Didn't you get this in Theology 101 class? You don't seem to know the Scriptures. Here you are as priests serving as mediators between God and man. You don't even know the power of God. And so he then corrects their false understanding of the resurrection. And he even does this in a way to kind of digs at them. He says, what are we going to be like? We're going to be like angels. You know that irritated them. So Jesus then, unlike his opponents, he now is going to deal straightforwardly. You want to go to the scriptures? You want to go to Moses? Let's do that. Verse 26. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. I mean this is this is in your face talk. Who do the Sadducees revere above all other figures and writers? It is Moses. His books alone are the ones they study. And Jesus has the audacity to retort, Haven't you read Moses? You know what's going on here? You see, the fundamental argument of the Sadducees was that Moses did not teach the resurrection. And by the way, they actually had a pretty strong argument. You do a word study of resurrection in the Old Testament, you're not going to find it. Okay? A clear teaching of the resurrection actually doesn't develop until the period actually between the Old and New Testaments. And that's why, I look, even today, there are many Jewish rabbis today. They, they don't believe in the resurrection. They're skeptical, even, of life after death. But Jesus does believe in the resurrection. He does believe in life after death, and he goes straight to the writings of Moses to prove his position. Now... He his answer maybe appears to be a little bit more than a clever retort. And there's some commentators who think he's just kind of playing around with words. He says, God is the God of the living because he says, I am. I am the God of the patriarchs, not I was. But Jesus is not a mere he's not merely spinning kind of words and phrases, he's not playing with the grammar. Jesus is the master rabbi, and he understands the full depths of the Holy Scriptures. What does it mean he's taking us to of calling himself the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob? Well, consider what the statement would mean from the viewpoint of the Sadducees. To them, it would mean God is saying, look, I, I was their God only while they lived, at death, at the moment of man's greatest fear well, I cease to have anything to do with them. They're now non-entities. They do not exist except in memory. And that promise to Abraham that he was to be the father of millions, you know, this was a promise for him to dream about. You know, it kind of cheered him up while he existed, but nothing more, because there is no future for Abraham. There's no future for anyone. So do you, Jesus is saying, do you really think that the message that God was giving to Moses as he called his people to, to lead them out of Egypt, do you actually think that he was saying to this, I am your God, Moses, well, while you're alive. But then when you die, you're not going to be anymore. Do you do you believe that Moses left his secure life at the age of, of 80 to do a work that he admittedly feared to do because he was so moved at the idea of God proclaiming himself as as a God of people who no longer exist. God is not a cemetery keeper. He does not walk around the big cemetery in the sky pointing to memorial stones and saying, you know, I remember your father Abraham. Boy, we had some good times together. I I miss him. Oh, there's Jacob's grave. Oh boy, boy, he was a rascal, wasn't he? Yahweh, Jehovah, I am who I am, is the God of the living, not the dead. And that is the plain way in which, isn't that plain on how God interacts with His people? Are we to believe that He created man in His own image, man and woman, Just the past to time with him for a little while before his life is snuffed out. You know, kind of like he was bored and he needed a few people to entertain him or something. Come on, Sadducees, think about this. What's the tree of life about in the book of Moses? If God had not intended for man to live forever. And Sadducees, let's let's keep up the Bible study for a moment. In Genesis 5. Moses lists the descendants of Adam, noting how each died, but then he adds that, but God took Enoch away. Is there a way to end life without dying? Doesn't it make more sense to understand that Enoch is still alive with God? And do you really think that the Exodus, that it was actually nothing more than improving living conditions? That the great displays of of God's power and deliverance, of establishing the Israelites as God's holy nation, and establishing that that law and sacrificial system, it was all for the the mere purpose of making them good citizens, the, the few years that they exist. Look, when God threatened to blot his people out of his book, do you remember that with Moses? Do you think it meant nothing more than his scrapbook of memory, keepsakes? Is that all he was talking about? As one person said, no wonder they were sad, you see. You get it? Sad you, you see. All they have to live is but for a moment. Which, by the way, explains why they were so intent as they were in possessing wealth and power. All you got is what you got for today. Truly, Jesus said to them, you are badly mistaken. Now, let's consider how badly mistaken is this view in our own day, and that there is no immortality or resurrection. Now, such a view is mistaken because it misinterprets scripture and because it degrades our mortal life. First of all, the scriptures, we've already been pointing them out a little bit here. But Jesus confined himself to, to Moses because he was sparring with the Sadducees. He could have gone on to the other scriptures. He could have pointed to Elijah, who was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. He could have recited Job's great statement of faith. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. They have come to Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. could have quoted from the well-beloved Psalm 23. Surely goodness and love will follow me All the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He could have pointed to the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 26. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Get appointed to Daniel chapter twelve Daniel's prophecy. At that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, which is the book of life, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Of course, the greatest cause for us believing in the resurrection of life to come is Jesus Christ himself. Apostle Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. As he says again in Romans 6, if we have been united with him, like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. Or again in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. We don't need Paul to tell us we have the promises of Jesus in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. For the great word of, of comfort that we all love so much, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. Take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So, deny, for us, to have to deny the life after death, the resurrection, we would have to deny the promise, the hope that fills the pages of Scripture. And there are those for whom it doesn't, Scriptures don't matter to them anyhow. And how wonderful it would be if all we had was just this life, nothing nothing fighting about, no doctrines and all that. That's, well, those of you my age, you know, imagine, it was John Lennon imagining how wonderful life would be Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No, no hell below us. Don't to worry about that. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people. Imagine all the people living for today. Isn't that a wonderful thought. Well, let's imagine. Here's another fellow who imagined. Thomas Harding. He was a, a poet and a novelist. In the 19th century, you know, he, he did not believe in heaven or hell. He did not believe in God. He believed that all that existed was this life. And he is an honest man who really can, looks at what life is about or not about. He writes, he writes this poem. If but some vengeful God would call to me from up the sky and laugh, Thou suffering thing, know that thy sorrow is my ecstasy, that thy loves and losses my hates profiting. He's saying, look, you know, the, the tragedy, the sorrows and all that I'm going through. If only there was a God and he's a vengeful God, you know, out there. And he's saying, boy, I want you to know what's happening to you because of me. Okay. Here's what he's, and he responds, then I would bear it. Clutch myself and, and die, steeled by the sense of ire unmerited. I, I would be able to at least be angry at someone at the injustice of it all. Okay. But not so. How arrives at joy, life slain, that I've lost everything. And why unblooms the best hope ever sown? Crass casualty. Put it another way, pure Chance obstructs the sun and the rain, and dicing time, just gambling time for gladness, cast a moan. He says, These purblind doomsters, these doomsters that are just an emptying force, could have just as easily given blessings in my life as pain. And so, whether, whether it's something bad, whether it's something good, There is nothing out there that cares. Nothing. No one. There is no meaning to life. And without immortality and resurrection, why would it matter if there is a God in the sky? I mean, who cares? If all God does is play with us in our brief existence, what does it matter in the end? I mean, how terrible for a man who lives a wasteful life and realizes his error on his deathbed and then, then he dies. And he knows he's about to die. And there is nothing he can do about his life. How meaningless for a man to live a life of self-sacrifice. Only to die in the good he did. It comes undone. Anyhow, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is right. All is meaningless. There is nothing but this life. But there is more than this life. And we are not God's play toys to throw away when we wear out. Our destiny is not to be a mere plaque on God's memory wall. As C.S. Lewis wrote, in that weight of glory I've told you about before, you need to, to read that. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization. These are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. We're destined to live forever. Now his point in bringing that up was that we should treat our neighbor with respect and with seriousness. You see, the Sadducees, they saw only temporal small mortals and so they were arrogant and they mistreated people. I mean, All you got is just this one life who cares. And this is a good lesson for us to take note of. I mean, Lewis points out further as he goes on to write. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship Or else, a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. What we do, how we treat one another, matters. It has eternal consequences. Now that was his point there, but here's the real lesson that I want you to take home. It's the emphasis that I think Jesus was making. The God you worship is your God forever. He's, He will not leave you. He will never forsake you. And especially at the time of your greatest peril traveling into death, He who created you will sustain you. And He wants you to know that He, that He is. Not that he was the God of all the saints that have gone before you, including the loved ones that you're thinking of even now. My God is the God of Allie Large, my Christian sister who died at 25. She is the God of Richard Shear, my college mentor who died in his early 30s. He is the God of my spiritual mentor, James Boyce, who died at 61. And your God is, not was, the God of... Well, you fill in that blank. You complete that sentence now. He's still their God, as he is your God. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God... He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to you, our great God, that you have given us the victory over death. Because our Lord Jesus has won victory over death. And in his resurrection, we look to our own resurrection to come. And we give you thanks, our God, all of us here. All of us here have lost loved ones. We thank you that they, with us even now, continue to worship our God, who is our God forever. In Christ's name, amen.